This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. First Peter chapter number two, we're going to start in verse number one. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envyings and all evil speaking. Now, just to give you context here, Peter's writing to Christians and he's saying to them, because you're Christians, this is how you're going to live now. Because you are a child of God, these are the things that we're going to put away. Verse number one, uh, lying, hypocrisy, envies, evil speakings. Verse number two, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Just like babies need milk to grow and they desire it. I want you to desire the word of God so that you can do what? Grow. You cannot grow as a Christian apart from the Bible. You just can't. That's why I challenge you every single day to read the Bible and do what it says because this is the way you will grow. You cannot grow apart from the Bible. And he says, just like babies desire milk, I want you to desire the milk of the word that you may grow. If so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious to him coming as a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, it's also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him should not be confounded. Verse number six says, actually verse number five says that we are a spiritual house and we are the stones that make up the house of God. In the Old Testament, there was a place where everyone went to worship. It was called the temple. But the Bible says, and now in the New Testament, now that Jesus has come, there's no longer a building that everyone has to go to worship, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. And we make up the house of God, and every single one of us that are Christians are stones that are put together that make up the house of God. The house of God is not 1216 Waimanu Street. It's not these four walls that are made of cinder block. That's not the house of God. The house of God are the people that are gathered here. And if we didn't have this building, we would still have the house of God because it is built up from stones, you and I, that make up the house of God. But verse six says something really important, that there is a cornerstone that is laid that is a rock of offense. It's offensive to some people because he claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claims to be the son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to die for the sins of mankind, and that is offensive, but he is our chief cornerstone. Uh, My son and I, Thatcher, uh, had done some construction projects, and we didn't have a clue as to what we were doing. We watched a lot of YouTube videos and just tried to figure it out as we went. And the very first wall that he and I put up, I I looked at a couple of YouTube videos, and if you're like me, you don't have a lot of patience to to listen to all the, hey guys, welcome to my YouTube channel. Today we're talking about framing out to, uh, you're gonna need, before you get ready, make sure you got your safety goggles and make sure you have, fast forward through all that, show me this stuff I wanna see, right? And I see some guy screwing together two by fours to make a wall. I can do that, so we did it. 
start screwing it all together, uh, put it up, uh, and the, uh, get another one, another wall, frame it, put them on the, the, the side, drill some screws through that. I think we're good. And then we began looking, and first of all, our, our wall isn't straight up and down. Second of all, the corner's not at a 90-degree angle. And I step back, and I go, man, something's not right. And my son, Thatcher, who's smarter than me in many ways, uh, says to me, well, Dad, did you use a level to put it straight up and down? And I go, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's important. Uh, we, go grab the level, and we'll, we'll re-put it. We did it. We put it back up again. Now it's straight up and down. But we still got a corner that's not right. And he said, well, did you use a square? Do we have a square? I think I saw one in the toolbox. Yeah, never used one of those before. I think this is what it's used for, though. Yeah, and so we went and got us a square, and we actually made a legitimate wall that to this day hasn't fallen down yet. That's important, right? But the corner was really important because everything else gets built off the corner. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, is the chief cornerstone. Everything gets built off of him. We're not building off of you and I. We're not building off of tradition. We're not building off the way that things have always been. We're building off of Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. You and I are just the stones that build up the house that he's created. That's verse number six. Verse number seven, unto you therefore that believe he is precious. But to them which are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. In other words, verse number seven, it says, uh, to you that believe, if you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a child of God, you have your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I love that phrase, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, those that don't call Jesus Christ their Savior, those who have their own thing going on, they've actually chucked Jesus out as the chief cornerstone. They don't need him in their life. And the Bible says they've disallowed him from being able to set the direction for the way things it should be. Verse number eight, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So these people have looked at Jesus Christ and said, nope, don't want that. They've looked at Jesus Christ and said, nope, don't need that. I'm going my own way. I'm doing my own thing. I don't need him to set the corner, which we're gonna build off of. I'm gonna build my life off of myself. Verse number nine really turns a corner though. But ye, you, y'all, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation or the way that you live honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak as against you as evildoers, that they may be, that they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves unto the, every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors, unto them that are sent for, by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Today we're taking a look at how we magnify Jesus through our transformation. Our theme this year is magnify Jesus. That means we want to make Jesus larger than he has been. 
in our own lives, in the lives of others. To magnify Jesus isn't to make Jesus bigger than he is because he's so big that we can't make him any larger. He created everything. He spoke the worlds into existence. The Bible says by him everything consists and continues to exist and there's nothing we can do to make Jesus any bigger than he is, but we can magnify him, make him appear larger in our own lives so that other people can see him. And today we're taking a look at how we magnify Jesus, make Jesus bigger through transformation. Everybody loves a good before and after photo. Everybody loves a good transformation. That's why these goofy television shows where they buy a house for $20,000 and they flip it for $200,000, obviously not in Hawaii, uh, but they do things like that. Man, people are enamored by that. They love to watch these fixer-upper TV shows where people take something that's terrible and they make it into something good. We get sucked into it as well when we're watching, uh, flipping through the channels on late night television. We stop on some P90X commercial and go, oh, here's a guy who had a big, huge, super gut and he worked out for 90 days and he's completely and totally shredded, right? I could do that because we see a before and we see an after. Every now and then though, us guys especially see some before and after for some cosmetics and we go, what's the difference? I don't get it. Be careful, very careful with this if you're married because your wife will come to you and sometimes I think she's gonna trick you and say, do you notice anything different? And you gotta have a good answer for that, okay? And, uh, and guys, I'm gonna give you one. Sweetheart, you look just as beautiful as the day that I met you. That's always a good one to go with, okay? Uh, so put that in your back pocket, pull it out when you think that you might need it. You notice anything different? Sweetheart, you look just as beautiful as the day that I met you. Uh, so, but, but my wife came to me this past week and she says, I've been using this new eye cream. What do you think about it? And I said, it looks great. Um, I, I, don't, I can't really tell anything. She said, well, can you see right here? Um, it looks great. No, here, let me turn the light on so you can see better. <laughs> it looks awesome. I love it. Whatever you're doing, keep it up, all right? As long as it's not expensive, right? Uh, this is like $90 a month regimen. I can deal with a few wrinkles, okay? Uh, but um, man, keep it up, you know? But, but sometimes we, we, we look and we can't really tell the difference between the, the before and the after. Have you ever seen somebody post their, their photos on the internet? It says, oh, this is me before I started keto and this is me after keto. And you're looking and you're like, which one's the before and which one's the after? Because like, just, I know you might feel better and things like that. That's great, but I can't see the difference. You know what I think happens for many Christians sometimes? They say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. And I think people sit back and go, hmm, I'm not really seeing it. Which one's the before and which one's the after? I've seen people who proclaim to be followers of Christ who there's no difference in their life after they met Christ than there was before they met Christ. It's just the same. I know some Christians who call themselves Christ followers, but the only thing that changed for them was their, their weekly routine and the fact that they'll give Jesus an hour, maybe 90 minutes on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week is just exactly the same. That's not biblical Christianity. Just not how it works. Peter draws a clear delineation in chapter two here. Hey, this is how you used to live, but we don't do that anymore. There are people who reject Jesus Christ as the head of their life. Not you. Not you, Christ follower. Not you, Christian. Nope, you're different. And let me just tell you this. If people cannot see a difference that Jesus has made in your life, you need to check your heart and make sure that Jesus really is the Lord of your life. 
When I was a kid, uh, I used to think that Lord was Jesus' first name, Jesus was his middle name, and Christ was his last name, Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I didn't get it. I, th- I was, always thought it was uh, Joseph and Mary Christ, and Jesus was their son, Jesus. Uh, not the case. Lord means that he's the boss, he's in charge. Jesus was his given name, meaning Yahweh or Jehovah saves. Christ is a recognition that he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the prophesied one who would set people free from their sins. Lord Jesus Christ, it really means something. But the word Lord literally means that he's the boss. He calls the shots. He does, uh, we do what he tells us to do. And many folks have made Jesus Christ their savior. Oh, I want Jesus to deliver me from my sins. I'm not really ready to let him be Lord yet. I got my own thing going on. Don't mess with that. I'm thankful for a ticket to heaven. I'm thankful for the fire insurance that comes from not having to go to hell for my sins. But the whole like Lord of my life, I'm gonna need a minute on that. And then a minute turns into a couple of weeks and then a couple of years and then there's really no change whatsoever. And I want to be clear here. Our salvation is not determined on our behavior. The Bible says it's not of works that we have done. By the grace of God, we are saved. If you're a child of God today, it's because God saved you by his grace. Nothing that you did. The only thing that you brought to the equation was your sin, your faith, and your repentance. That's the only thing that will ever save you. But the Bible is also very, very clear that once we are saved, it'll bring about a radical change in our life. Radical, massive change. Jesus changes us from the inside out. And it's not just gonna be like an undercover change, like, well, I see it if nobody else does. No, 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 it's just change that is visible. And if we're gonna see the transformation, we need to understand, first of all, where we came from and where Jesus has brought us to. As you're taking notes this morning, once you write down these thoughts, before we jump into the text, I just want to kind of give you an idea of what the Bible says about who we were before we met Jesus. First of all, we were the children of disobedience. There's a prevalent thought in the world today that we are all the children of God because we are all God's creations. Yes, we are all, all of God's creation for sure. But we are all, not all the children of God. The Bible says that we are born into this world into a sinful condition And the Bible goes so far as to call us not the children of God by default, but the children of disobedience. Colossians chapter three, verse number five says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, which for the things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Colossians three even tells us, hey, this unsaved, carnal, children of disobedience, they're gonna be identified. Notice the very first sins that it starts talking about are sexual sins. I don't think it's any uh, coincidence that our society today has become overly sexualized. Uh, We don't just uh, turn a blind eye to sin now. We're expected to revel in sin. And if we don't, we're considered prudes. We're considered uh, hardcore right-wing Republicans and people just group us into a a voting block because of our values or our morals. And we get called bigots and hate mongers because we refuse to not just allow people to continue in their sin, but we don't celebrate their sin with them. Hey, no, can't do that. We're different. 
And notice here, he says, if you're living that way, that is idolatry, it says first and foremost. And idolatry is when we take anything and put it in the place of God. God's no longer God, I am God. God no longer calls the shots, I call the shots. The Bible says it's idolatry here. And it says, which things, for the which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And notice what he says at the end here, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Hey, that used to be you, but it's not anymore. Notice he's drawing a clear line in the sand. Christians don't act this way. Christians aren't involved in this type of sexual sin. Christians aren't involved in this type of idolatry. You used to do that, but you've been set free from that. But we used to be the children of disobedience. Next, the Bible says that we were the children of wrath. Ephesians chapter two, verse number three, among whom we also had our conversation. Anytime you see in the New Testament that word conversation, it means the way that you live your life. Among whom we also had the way that we lived our lives in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Notice again here, it's taking a look at the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our mind. Friend, if that's you, that's not how you're called to live. Christian, if you are fulfilling the lust of your, the, of your flesh and of your mind, the Bible says you're going the opposite direction of where you're supposed to be. That used to be you. That shouldn't be you anymore. If you're continuing to live in the lust of your flesh and continuing to live in your sin, I think a lot of folks are looking and going, yeah, I don't see the difference between the two. Well, if that's what you used to be, which is what you still are, then what are you supposed to be because you're obviously not living that? We can't afford that because our goal is to magnify Jesus. Next, the Bible tells us that we were the children of the devil. Again, the idea that, that we are all God's creations, therefore we are all God's children, is not true whatsoever. The Bible says that God has one only begotten son and his name is Jesus but God has many adopted children that are adopted into his family but you don't get adopted automatically Jesus speaking to a group of very religious people who thought that they were somebody says in John chapter 8 verse number 44 you of your father the devil and the lust of your father ye will do he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there's no truth in him when he speaketh a lie he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it incredible things we don't have time to break down this morning first of all if you're not a child of God you're a child of the devil second of all all lies come from the devil 100% we can take this even to the next level and say this. If all lies come from the devil, every single false religion on the planet is satanic in nature. 100%. The only satanic religion is not the church of Satan, okay? And people think, oh, well, well, it's not the church of Satan. If it's false religion, it's satanic because the father of all lies is the devil, 100%. And know this. Let me just help you with this. If you're looking for a church, always use the Bible as your guide, 100% of the time. And study it out in context. Allow the Bible to be your guide. I'm so grieved at people who go to churches where false gospel is preached, and they say, oh, but I love the community there, just a bunch of great people. You can't afford it. 
You can't, you cannot sacrifice doctrine on the altar of community. Well, I know they preach some things that are a little bit out there, but I'm telling you this, the music really just gets me right here. You can't afford it. Don't do it. We have to be gun barrel straight on every matter of doctrine because the, any false doctrine is from the devil. And, and again, let me help you with this. Any religion that takes the focus off of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and puts it on my feelings or anything else is not of God, it is of the devil. I'm gonna take this one step further because Jesus told us this. If you read John 14, 15, 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's gonna come and when he's gonna come, he's not gonna speak of himself, he's gonna speak of me. He's not gonna tell you what he thinks, he's gonna tell you what I have said. He's going to guide you into all truth. He's gonna reprove the world of sin. And he says this, Jesus says this, Jesus himself says this, the Holy Spirit will not speak of me, or speak of himself, he'll speak of me. And so here's what Jesus himself says. The Holy Spirit doesn't want the spotlight. The Holy Spirit just wants to reflect us back to Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't want a big deal made of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants Jesus to be made a big deal of. And and let me just tell you, any church, religion, denomination, organization that takes the focus off of Jesus Christ and puts it onto the Holy Spirit is doing the exact opposite of what Jesus said. And if we take the focus off of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind, and we put it on anything else, that's not of God, and there's only one person that it could be of. It's satanic. You take the focus off of Christ and his finished work on the cross and put it on me, you, the music, the community, the, the program that they have for the kids, that's not of God, it's of the devil. Be careful with that. And sometimes people say, well, it just feels right. I know it feels right because you're allowing your flesh and your feelings to be your guide, not the word of God. The word of God will never lead you astray, never. And there's people before us, pastor, are you so arrogant to believe that our church is 100% right on all matters of faith and doctrine? I would hope so. And that's not arrogancy, that's surety in the scriptures. And if you can please show me anywhere where we're wrong, I wanna make it right, I'll tell you that. I really do, because I can't afford to be wrong, you can't afford to be wrong on matters of doctrine. The word doctrine means truth that we hold to. And doctrine is one of the most important things because it drives everything that is a priority for us. Next, we were orphaned children. Again, we were not born into the family of God. We were born without a father. Hebrews 12, as it talks about the chasing that takes place upon God's real children, those that have been adopted into his family. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number seven, if you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. In other words, God spanks or corrects his own children. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, fatherless children, and not sons. So if you're not a son of God, a daughter of God, you are an orphaned child with no father whatsoever. No father looking out for you. This is who we were before we met Jesus Christ. Next, the Bible tells us that we were the enemies of God. Romans chapter five, verse number 10. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So I'm not 
automatically born into the family of God. I'm automatically born an enemy of God. And sometimes I'll talk with folks and I'll say, hey, tell me about in your life when you accepted Christ as Savior. And sometimes people say, well, I've always believed in God and I've always been a Christian. <laughs> Actually, you haven't. The Bible says you've always been an enemy of God. You've always disobeyed God. You've always been a child of wrath. You've always been a child of disobedience. You've always been under the wrath of God. You've always been an orphan child, but you haven't always been a Christian. Now you can might say, I've always believed in God from as long as I can remember. For me, there was never a time in my life where I decided I think I believe in God now. But as a nine-year-old boy, I recognize, although I went to church three times a week and my parents uh, taught Sunday school classes and my dad was a deacon in the church, I realized at nine years old, that doesn't make me a Christian. I must put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I must be saved. I must be born again. Because we're not automatically born into the family of God. We're automatically born enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were far from God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were afar off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. You, used, you, you couldn't have found God if you'd wanted to. If we'd given you a roadmap, you couldn't have found God because you were so far away from him. But now you're brought close to Jesus. How did you get close to Jesus? This verse tells us by the blood of Christ. Next, we were under the wrath of God. Sin must be punished 100%. Sin cannot go unpunished. God can't turn a blind eye to it. God can't act like it didn't happen. Sin must be punished, and it's punished by the wrath of God. The wrath of God will be poured out on two separate occasions, the Bible tells us. It's gonna be poured out in the tribulation time in the last days. Seven years, God's wrath will be poured out on mankind on earth. Uh, we as a church believe that Christians will not endure that time of wrath, that time of tribulation that will be in heaven uh, with Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ridiculous amounts of books have been written about that. If you're curious about it, let me know. I'll give you all the information you ever wanted to know. But the wrath of God will be poured out on the last days, and then the wrath of God will be poured out for all of eternity in hell. Hell is a real place that burns with real fire for all of eternity. There's no second chances. There's no getting out. The wrath of God, the punishment for God, for, for the sins of mankind by God is God's wrath poured out. And friend, nobody wants that. Nobody. But that's where we were headed before we met Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you're headed there right now. John chapter three, verse number 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is a Bible promise that you have everlasting life. And what a great promise. Praise God for that. But he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. There's only death coming for him. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Before I met Jesus Christ as Savior, I had a death sentence. The wrath of God was coming for me. It was not a matter if, it was a matter of when. The wrath of God would be poured out on me as punishment for my sin. Here's the worst part in the world. If you're a child of God and you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, good for you. But there are hundreds of thousands of people who live within our city limits that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. And according to this verse, the wrath of God abides on them. 
That's why this is such a big deal for us. That's why I'm challenging you to be a light, to share your faith, because someone will spend eternity somewhere and we have the opportunity to make the difference. We got the answer. What are we doing with it? Oh, they might think that I'm weird. So what people think of you is more important than where they spend eternity? That sounds pretty selfish to me. Well, I just, I don't know everything that there is to know about the Bible yet. So after you finish your doctoral theology degree, you're gonna be able to share your faith better? How about you just take what you know and share it? Jesus saw the woman at the well and he told her everything she'd ever done. And she put her faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and she went back and she said, hey guys, you gotta come meet this Jesus. He's told me everything that I've ever done. I believe that I found the Messiah. And the Bible says that an entire city came and got saved as a result of it. Well, what Bible verses did she quote? She didn't have any. Well, what, uh, what deep theology did she share? She didn't share any. She just says, hey, I don't really understand all this. All I know is what happened to me. And you know what? I think people saw this woman who had lived with multiple men, had multiple husbands, living with a guy who wasn't her husband. And I think they saw something in her, you know what I'll call it? I'll call it a transformation. That she says, hey, you gotta, I don't fully understand this, but you gotta see this. And people are like, Something's different for sure. What is it? I need, more, uh, I need more information. I want to get to know that. And if we really believe that hell's a real place and we really believe that people are really going there, why doesn't it fire us up every day? Why doesn't it change the priorities of what's really important to us in life? If we really believe that, because again, this is why doctrine is so important because our belief determines our behavior. If you really believe something to be true, it'll change the way that you live, unless you don't really think that it's true or you have competing priorities. So we were children of disobedience, children of wrath, children of the devil, orphan children, enemies of God, far from God. We were under the wrath of God. But when we got saved, everything changed. Everything. I want to pause here for just a second. Are you sure that you're saved I'm not talking about like, well, I grew up in a really small town at a Baptist church and I remember when I got baptized. I'm not talking about your baptism or your church heritage. Do you know for sure that you're born again? The Bible says, no man, Jesus, Jesus says, John chapter three, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. That's really important. You're not getting to heaven unless you're saved. Well, maybe there's other ways other than Jesus. Not according to Jesus. John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Important. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Are you sure that you're saved? Because if you're not saved, you're still a child of disobedience, a child of wrath, a child of the devil. You're still under God's wrath. You're still on the hook for all the sin that you've ever done if that is you. But you don't have to be because Jesus died in your place to save you from your sin. Jesus came, lived a perfectly sinless life, went to the cross for one purpose and one purpose only, to die for the payment of our sins. And the third place where God's wrath was poured out or will be poured out was on Jesus Christ upon the cross. And Jesus cried in agony, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he experienced the wrath of God as the payment for our sins. He, he was without sin. But he became sin for us, the Bible says, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. He died in my place. He died in your place. Have you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior? 
I'm not talking about do you believe in God. The Bible says the devils believe and tremble. I'm talking about have you accepted Christ as your Savior? If not, you're still under God's wrath. But if so, when you got saved, everything changed. You say, well, I think serious radical transformation. No, you're no longer a child of disobedience. You're no longer a child of wrath. You're no longer a child of the devil. You're no longer enemies of God. The Bible says you were adopted into the family of God. You're now a son. You're now a daughter of God. It's a big deal. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 9, Paul says, as he writes to Timothy, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Are you sure that you're saved? And again, please don't tell me you've always been saved. Jesus, Jesus makes it so clear for us in John chapter three. If you've never read John three, read it this week. It'll take you less than five minutes. Jesus said this, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And the guy he's talking to was a religious leader and he says to him, how am I supposed to get into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Man's born once by water, by a physical birth, but he's born a second time by the Holy Spirit. And just like you were born at a specific time, date, and place, friend, you must be born again at a certain time, date, and place. Now, again, the fact that you remember the, the day and the time is not important, but the fact that you remember a life event where you put your faith in Jesus, it's critical. And I've sat with folks before who they say, oh, I'm, I remember one time in vacation Bible school, I went in this Sunday school classroom and I did something I don't remember what I did and I'm not sure if that counts or not and I don't remember who I talked to or what we talked about and uh, I remember after that somebody told me I should get baptized and I don't know if that counts or not hey look eternity's far too long to be hoping so thinking so maybe so something that I maybe said as a kid in a Sunday school classroom somewhere hey look you need to know that your sins are forgiven and you're right with God no and somebody said before, I, I talked with dozens of people who have said, well, can you ever really know? These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not think so, hope so, know. And friend, Jesus wants you to know that you're saved. He died for your sins, not so that you could have some, some uh, I think I might make it one day when my time is up. No, so that you could know that you have everlasting life because that changes how we live. So, let's get back to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. <clears throat> We're to spend most of our time in verse number 9 because that's where the change takes place. This is where the transformation takes place. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First and foremost, we are God's chosen race of people. As Peter writes this letter, he wrote, wrote it originally in the Greek language, and the word that he uses there for uh, at the uh, first part of verse number nine, a chosen generation, is the word genos, G-E-N-O-S, where we get the term generation or race or nationality from. We're God's chosen people, a chosen generation, a, ch a chosen lineage, a, a family that he has chosen. 
When Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind, he chose you to be a part of his family. Whether you accept it or reject it, it's completely and totally up to you, but you've been chosen. Colossians chapter three, verse number 11 says, there's neither Greek nor Jew, nor circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all in all. He says, hey, there used to be this whole racist thing going on between Jews and Greeks and Samaritans and all that. Yeah, that's done away with now. There used to be a big deal about who was a, a bondsman and who was a free man. And where were the slaves and where were the masters? All that's done because Jesus Christ has created himself a new people. He has his family that he has purposely chosen now and we're different now. Take a look at the room, around the room this morning. I don't think you could pick a more diverse group of people. And I love that about our church because you know what we really just have in common? Jesus. We have a common father. We're brothers and sisters here. We're a family here. And it doesn't matter where you grew up or what part of the country you're from, what part of the world you're from or what kind of church background that you have and things like that. We're not in common by the church background that we have. We're in common by who our father is and who our savior is. And that's created something new for all of us. But a young man accept Christ as Savior last Sunday morning. Heard the gospel, got saved. <laughs> Welcome to the family. Glad to have you apart. Now you get to spend the rest of your life learning what it means to be a good son of God. This is it. You weren't part of it before, but you are now. Hey, anybody's welcome to attend here, but a church is made up of saved, baptized, committed believers who are, have made a commitment to walk with Jesus. That's who we are. We're a church. Anyone can attend. I want people that don't know Jesus to attend here so that they can hear the gospel and be saved, so that they can be a part of our family. Everyone's welcome to join the family. But you have to be willing to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior because God has created a new offspring, a new generation, a new group of people that would be called his people. You see, God had already called in the book of Deuteronomy a group of people who would be his people, children of Israel. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm creating from you a chosen generation. And they chose to rebel against God. And God sent his son Jesus and said, Jesus is going to do a new thing from here on out. And he's going to include everybody to be a part of his family that chooses to be a part. And we now are God's chosen people because we are followers of his. I'll pause here for just a second. If we are a chosen race, a chosen generation, a chosen family line, this also does away with the idea of racism, period, end of story. I have zero tolerance whatsoever for any level of racism. Had some folks, we were probably, I don't know, six months old as a church and somebody called our church office and it was exciting back in that day because we never got phone calls even from telemarketers back then. It was exciting. Phone rang and it said, thanks for calling. Who are you calling about his church? This is Pastor. How can I help you? Oh, Pastor, I got a question for you. Sure. Um, uh, my husband and I are an interracial couple and we're just calling to see if we'd be welcome on Sunday morning. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> what do you mean by Welcome. Well, would we be able to attend church there? Um, sure. Uh, I'm not sure why you had to ask that, though. Well, there have been other churches before where we didn't feel like we fit in. I'm sorry to hear that because God's family accepts everybody. Hope you'll be here. But it's strange to me, like, do we really have to have this conversation? Look, Christian, if you've truly been saved, we don't laugh at inappropriate jokes at work. We don't laugh at racial stereotypes. We don't tell racist jokes. We just don't. We're different. 
I remember as a kid, my dad owns a body shop, still owns a body shop to this day. I remember our pastor of our church at the time would come by my dad's shop and hang out with my dad's uh, workers that he had at his shop. And I'd been inviting these guys to church again and again and again and again, and none of them ever came. And um, I remember the pastor coming by, and I was in another room, but I could still hear what they were talking about, our, our pastors, and they're telling racist jokes. And I remember I was probably 12 at the time. I was remembering, thinking to myself, Christians are fake. That's what they do. They, they put on a good show on Sunday, and they go out, and they live just like everybody else throughout the week. And, and for me, as a 12-year-old boy, I lost 100% respect to my pastor, 100%. Then a few weeks later, I'd hear him come by tell, telling inappropriate, dirty jokes or curse words. I thought to myself, doesn't line up with the Bible. You know what? That's not biblical Christianity at all. Here's what the Bible calls that. Verse number one says we should put aside hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not somebody who's trying to get their act together and clean it up. Hypocrisy is not somebody who occasionally falls back into their old ways but really wants to make it. Hypocrisy, the, the word hypocrisy literally means one who wears a mask. You put on a fake show, and you know it's fake, and when you go home, you take the mask off, and you live how you want to. And look, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 1. We're laying that to the side Christians can afford to be hypocrites. Be the real deal. Be an authentic Christian. Next, we see in this passage, verse number 9, your chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We're priests. God has a governance structure, I guess you could say, in the New Testament church that he gives us. There's pastors, there's deacons, and then there's the church. We don't have any priests. We don't have a confessional booth. My prayers aren't any more powerful than any other person that's walking with Jesus this week. The book of James tells us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So if I want my prayers to other folks pray with me. I want to pray with people who are doing the right thing and living for Jesus. But frankly, you've got as much access to, to God as I do. Because priests have direct access to the presence of God. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest was a go-between. You couldn't be in the presence of God. You'd die. And even the priests had to make sure that they were fully right, fully holy before they ever walked into the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, they could be struck dead in the presence of God. But you know what the Bible says here? We're a, a holy priesthood a royal priesthood. We have direct access to God. There's no go-between here. I'm thankful that I don't have to tell a man in a box all of my prayers and hopefully uh, get some forgiveness from God. No, I can go to God directly and say everything that I need to say. I don't have to pray through an intermediary to get to God. I can go directly to him because of what Jesus has done for me. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that Jesus is my go-between between me and God and I have direct access anytime. Can you imagine having to wait to talk to a priest to pray to God? Oh, I'll get this thing. It's on my heart tonight. I really want to talk to God about it, but the priest doesn't get in until 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. I guess I'll have to wait. How terrible would that be? Can you imagine having a burden that you needed to share to get off of you, but you had to wait for somebody to, to tell God for you? No, no, no. You got direct access to God. Priests also serve God by offering sacrifices. We saw that earlier in this uh, passage in chapter 2 here as well that we get to worship and serve God by offering sacrifices. We don't bring uh, incense and things like that before God as a sacrifice. You know what we bring? Our lives. 
Romans chapter 12, verse number one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Priests offer sacrifices. We are priests. We have direct access to God, and we offer him the sacrifice of our lives. You know why? Because we're different now. Because we're no longer children of disobedience. We're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer children of the devil. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer under the wrath of God. We're children now. We're not only children, we're a chosen generation. We're not only a chosen generation, we've been chosen to be in the presence of God and to serve him with our lives. Wow, that's a big deal. Next it goes on, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're his people, his nation. The word genos was used for his chosen generation, the word ethnos, E-T-H-N-O-S, is used here. This is the culture. This is the ethnicity of his people. We're his nation now. We have certain customs that we do. We have a certain way that we live. Why? Because we're his children. Our life is different from everyone else. Our culture is different than anyone else. You know why? Because we're different now. We don't act the same way. We don't live the same way. We don't talk the same way. Our lives are distinctly different because we're different. Holiness is our culture now. Righteousness is our culture. To hate evil and to do good is our culture now. To walk righteously, upright before God. That's our culture now. We're different. Why are we different? Because of the change that Jesus has made in us. <coughs> Next, we've been purchased and belong to him. Again, chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That word peculiar basically just means purchased property. I'm from the, originally from the South, and sometimes you'd hear pastors, or preachers, or evangelists say, well, brother, that'll preach. And what that means is they found a phrase they like, and they just want to stay on that. I've heard, this is not a lie, I've heard an entire message preached on peculiar people. You need to be a little bit peculiar for Jesus. You need to be a little bit weird for Jesus. You need to be willing to, to stand up and say, I'm peculiar, and that's all right. That's not what that word means, okay? It doesn't mean weird. It doesn't. It means that you are purchased property. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to someone else. So when it says that we're a peculiar people, it's not saying that we're weird or we're awkward or we don't fit in. It means you don't belong to yourself anymore. Well, there goes all the selfishness that I have in my life because I don't belong to me anymore. I've been purchased. A price has been paid for my soul. I have been redeemed. I was once a slave to my sin, and now I'm bought out of slavery and set free. How did that happen? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I'm free now. I've been purchased now. 1 Corinthians 6.20 you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. But you know what? Now, 
Now I have eternal life. A holy nation and peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I was once walking in darkness. It's like somebody flipped the light on. You ever had to stumble around in the dark because you didn't want to wake somebody else up? Remember I was in the Navy, my roommate, you know, I would get up at like 4 a.m. He'd get up at like 6 a.m. Every morning, 4 a.m., and they're fumbling around in my drawer, kicking stuff, stubbing my toe, getting dressed in the dark, only to get there and find out I put my T-shirt on backwards or something like that. It's just like, ah! But whenever he was out of town or something like that, man, getting dressed in the light, it's like, wow, this is how normal people do it, right? Do you remember before you met Jesus walking in the dark, just fumbling around, trial and error, trying to figure life out. And then God flipped the light switch on. You're like, oh, this is what life's about. This is where I messed up before. This is where I had blown it. Got it. I got to figure it out now. That's what it means to walk in this light. But not only that, we walk into eternal life. Now I get to not only spend this life walking with Jesus, I get to spend eternity with Jesus. I don't get to just live this life for a short period of time. I get to live it forever. I don't get to just be a part of a family for the time that I have left here on earth. I get to be a part of a family for all of eternity. God, we're gonna be in heaven together, all of us. If you're a child of God, we get to go to heaven together and celebrate together. How about we get together one night for Chick-fil-A? I'll treat, it'll be awesome, right? Because you know they're going to have the Lord's chicken in heaven. You know that. But think about that. We're not just part of a family for a brief window of time. And we're not part of a family until we, we leave this island. No, you're part of a family forever. Because God's chosen us. He saved us. He's brought us from a dark, terrible place. You took a look at Psalm 50 a couple Sunday nights ago. He took me out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings, and he's put a new song in my heart. I'm different now because I met Jesus. Everything changed. Why did he do that? To show how great he is. We were saved to show God's mercy to an unbelieving world. Again, the middle of verse number nine, that you should show forth his praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his light. Why did God save you? First of all, he loves you. But here's the important thing about every reason God does anything because he wants glory from it. And some people have looked at that before and goes, well, that's awfully conceited of God to want all the credit for everything that he does. And I can see that on the surface, but here's the problem with that thinking. When you and I want credit for everything we do, we don't want people to talk about the bad stuff we've done. We just want all the, the good praises. We don't want the criticism that goes with it. But here's the thing. God can't be criticized because he's always right. God can't be put down because he's always perfect. And God is the only person who is deserving of praise, worship, and glory. And so God saved you not because he wants you to go to heaven. That's a good byproduct. God saved you because he wants glory from your life. And as a byproduct of that, he wants to love you care for you, bring you to heaven one day, and make you have a fruitful life here on this earth. But the main thing, Revelation 4.11 says that we were created for God's pleasure. God created you because he wants glory, and he saved you because he wants glory. And many times Christians go, great, I got a ticket to heaven. Let me shove this in my back pocket and keep on going with my life the way that it should. 
than, than it was before. God says, no, 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 that's not the idea. The idea is that you would take what you've been given, first of all, pass it on to someone else, and then secondly, live for my glory so that it draws more people to me. That's the idea. You see, the transformation that takes place in our life isn't just solely for our benefit. It's for God's glory. We were saved to show God's transforming power. We were saved so that people could go, whoa, there's something different about that guy. One of our men this past week, his brother came out to visit. And I said, God's really done a work on your brother. You should be proud of him. I said, he's not even the same guy anymore. He goes, yeah, I know. I saw a video of him working with kids. And I said, that's not my brother. <laughs> Love it. You know what that is? That's transformation. That's people who say, you look like the same person, but this is not the same person I used to know. That's transformation. Transformation is not well, if I look long enough, maybe something's a little different. I don't know. It kind of looks the same to me before and after. I don't know which one's which. No, no, no. Transformation is like, whoa, you're different. You're not the same. And God did that to show his transforming power. We were saved to show the greatness of God. You were saved to show the greatness of God. Are you doing that well? I hope you are. Final thoughts this morning, we're done. First of all, if we're forgiven, let's live like we're forgiven. What does that mean? You're no longer held down by your past sin or your past failures. You're not forever gonna be the person who blew it at X. You're not gonna forever be a culmination or the sum of all of your sins. If you're forgiven, just live like you're forgiven. And if you have a crummy past like most people here, just say, hey, before I was walking with Jesus, I did a lot of stupid stuff, but praise God for his forgiveness, second chances and grace. Man, he's good. You ain't got to be ashamed of that. I don't have to be ashamed of my past unless I'm still living in my past. Because I'm set free. I'm a new creature in Christ. If you're forgiven, live like it. Next, if we're changed, let's live a changed life. We're no longer slaves to our sin. Why do you keep going back to it? If God has changed you, where's the change at? Can people see it? Is it obvious? Or are you an undercover Christian? Well, I believe the two things you don't talk about, religion and politics, and so I don't want to be out there and, and just put that out there. I want to be in my own thing. Hey, that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is I'm willing to stand for Christ and I'm not ashamed of it because I want other people to know Jesus. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power unto salvation. People get saved because of the gospel. I'm going to be ashamed of it. So if you're changed, live a changed life. Next, if we're different, let's live differently. Hey, look, if I'm just another house on the block that's screaming and yelling obscenities at my children, shame on me. But I want my kids to grow up and know what grace is. I want my kids to grow up and know what mercy is. I want my kids to grow up and know what chastisement is. I want my kids to grow up and know what unconditional love feels like. I want my kids to, to grow up and know it's okay to be a tough dude and still love Jesus. I want my kids to know that. How are they going to know that? Oh, I'll tell them. No, no, they're going to watch you. So if we're different, let's just live differently. I want my coworkers to know I'm a Christian. How are they going to know it? I don't know. Show it to them. Tell it to them. 
And we got invitation cards in your bulletin every week, every week of the world. And, and here's the thing. You, I hope you don't take that and just throw it away. Take it and give it to somebody this week. We take a lot of time, effort, energy, resources, money in printing those invitation cards because I want you to be able to say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed of it. Did you know this? You can download free tracks on the internet and print them out yourself, and they look terrible. <laughs> They're awful. They're embarrassing. I'm a Christian. I'd be embarrassed to hand those out. We want something that's nice, presentable, that you can say to somebody, hey, hey, if you got a church that you go to, that's fine, but on the back is the most important thing you'll ever read in your entire life. Talks about how you can know for sure when you die, you're on your way to heaven. Let me know if you have any questions on that. Hey, if you're, if you're different, live differently then. Next, final thought. If we're changed, if we are transformed, if we are different, if we belong to God, let's reflect his glory this week. If we belong to God, let's reflect his glory. The uh, KHON buildings over here on the corner of uh, Waimana Street and uh, Pecoy. Every now and then you see somebody out there with a camera and they got somebody on the sidewalk with a microphone. They're, they're talking stuff like that. The cameraman's got there. They got the lights on and stuff like that. And usually there's a guy standing on the side with one of those big things, looks like a windshield shade. And he's holding it there to the side. And he's getting it at the right angle and taking the sunlight and reflecting it back to the person on camera. You ever seen that before? <laughs> That's a picture of life. Here's the problem. You and I think we're the person on camera. We think it's all about us. We think that God should be reflecting on us to show how great we are. That we're the center of attention. That everybody's watching us. No, no, no. You're the guy holding the reflector. Who's on camera? Who's the star of the show? God is. And what are we doing? We're just taking all the good things that are happening in our life and we're reflecting it back to God's glory. You know what? You're different. Oh, praise God for that. <laughs> I'm just a terrible, rotten sinner that was saved by the grace of Jesus. Anything good in my life is because of how good God's been. Oh, you sure you have some good kids. Hey, we've just tried to do what the Bible says and just raise them for the Lord. And if anything good happens because of what he's done, because I've made my share of mistakes. Oh, it must be nice to have what you have. Oh, I don't have anything. Everything I have belongs to God. He's been overly abundantly gracious with me. Hey, man, how you doing today? Much better than I deserve, that's for sure. God's been so faithful to me. That's what it means to live for God's glory. Are you different? Are you transformed? Or are you just kind of just uh, got your ticket to heaven and you're good with that, sitting around waiting until your, your number gets called? Don't live like that. Jesus says, I came that they might have life. And he gave us eternal life. But he didn't stop there. And that they might have it more abundantly. God doesn't just want you to make it through life. God doesn't want you to survive. He wants you to thrive. And not thrive for your own benefit, thrive for his glory. That's our theme this year. Magnify Jesus. Not about me, it's all about Jesus. And Paul says, whether it be through my life or through my death, that Christ might be magnified. Let's live for the glory of God this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.